0: I uh, recently learned about a family tradition called the restaurant game. It was started by Kurt Warner, who is a two-time NFL MVP and Super Bowl champion, and actually a committed follower of Jesus. The game worked like this. It was the night before every single road game, Kurt and his wife would take their seven children, which is a lot, out to dinner. Once they were seated, one of the children would sort of scan the dining area where they were, uh, kind of like their dad would as a quarterback looking for potential receivers. When the Warner child would then find a table that, that they saw, they would pick that table. And what Kurt would do is he would then ask the waiter to add that dinner's table ta- or dinner tab to theirs all anonymously, and they would pay generously for that family or for those friends or that group of people's uh, their dinner. The idea for the restaurant game it came to him and his wife after Warner led the St. Louis Rams, rest in peace to that team, uh, to the Super Bowl victory that they had in 2000. They remembered the days before Kurt Warner's NFL career when Kurt was working a night shift at a grocery store and they had only food stamps to feed their family. And with that in mind, giving became a joyful family tradition for the Warners as they moved into a more secure line of work in the NFL and became financially well off. They decided they wanted to help other people that were in similar situations that they were in. He says this. He says, we want want our kids to grow up knowing that because of football, we are blessed. We never want them to lose sight of what it's really about. Our circumstances are not the most important thing. It's what we do with those circumstances. I love this story and how Kurt let difficult circumstances then shape a tradition in his family that models generosity in a fun and engaging way for their kids and then hopefully for one day his kids' kids. And we're in week three of our series entitled Genetically Generous. When we're talking about living a life of generosity by being who God created us to be, generous people. See, we learn in week one that every single one of us is wired in our DNA for generosity because we are made in the image of a generous God. We see this generosity throughout scripture as God is the one who gives life. He's the one who provides the, and ultimately the one who goes to the cross and dies for our sake and for the sake of the world. God is a generous God. And so we as human beings, made in his image, are also wired for generosity. Generosity is in our DNA. It is how we image God to the world. However, the way this generosity gets expressed, it's different for all of us. And to begin talking about that idea, let's turn to a passage in 2 Corinthians 9, where Paul writes to the church in Corinth about generosity. Some context is if you go back and you read chapter 8 and the beginning of chapter 9, you'll see Paul doing a very, very delicate work of challenging this church to follow through on a financial commitment they had previously made. And he's very intentional in his choice of words because, believe it or not, some people get a little bit nervous when the church talks about generosity and when pastors talk about generosity and money. Maybe you relate to that. (laughs) In this church in Corinth, there's no difference. And the context is what this church had promised to do was to send a generous offering to help the impoverished Christ followers who were trying to build a church in Jerusalem. But they hadn't followed through on that commitment. So Paul is sending someone to them to collect the offering that they said they would send, and he's encouraging the Corinth to be ready for this person. And then he says this. He says, remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Paul talks about those who sow sparingly and those who sow generously. Two kinds of people, but both of them are committed to the same practice of sowing, of giving. Now, what's interesting in this passage is that, is that Paul doesn't call out this third group, those who don't sow. He says, Some sow generously, some of you sow sparingly, and therefore some reap generously and some reap sparingly. But for Paul, everybody sows because we're all wired for generosity. Everybody has this natural, this inclination to give, and we're all called to give because we're created in the image of a generous God, and God wants us to become the people that he's created us to be, generous people. Jesus has defeated all of the enemies that would keep us from being generous, the fear of death, the fear of insecurity. No, because God will provide for our needs, because we're made in his image, because Jesus has defeated death, and therefore there is nothing to fear. We can give without fear, and we can give sacrificially and joyfully and generously. We're called to be generous people. It's who God's made us to be. And the question then is, for Paul, there's no, the, the option is not don't sow or sow. For Paul, he says that's not the question. No, because we're made in the image of a generous God, the question for all of us is will we sow sparingly or will we sow generously? We're made in the image of a generous God, so we all are made to be generous. Will we do so sparingly, through gritted teeth, with fear, uh, holding a little bit more in our pockets, or will we do so generously? Will we give above and beyond, going the extra mile, giving with joy and freedom? That's the choice that Paul is challenging us to make. He says, each of you should give what you've decided in your heart then to give. Which means the choice of whether we will give sparingly or give generously, it's made in the human heart. Of course, Paul is urging us to give generously. That's why he says, if you give or if you sow sparingly, you'll reap sparingly. But he does say, though, that God doesn't want us to give reluctantly or under compulsion, but freely, willingly, cheerfully, understanding the good news that God has set us free so we can give generously. So, what does this mean? What does it mean that we should decide in our heart to give? What does it mean that what we give is decided within the heart? It means that our motivation matters. The key to a life of sowing generously, it lies in our motivation. And I mean, think about it. Motivation, that's the key for most things in life. Motivation, it's, for example, if, if I want to be fit and healthy, if I, if I want to, you know, be able to run this distance or whatever it might be, motivation is what's going to determine whether I get myself to the gym or sit at home eating pancakes or whatever. <laughs> if I'm motivated to become fit and healthy, I will exercise generously. But if I'm not really motivated, I'll exercise sparingly. See, motivation is the key. When we're motivated to give, we will give cheerfully. And God loves a cheerful giver. Because they reflect him who gives cheerfully. The 14th century theologian Julian of Norwich wrote about this, the, the, the same idea this way. She says, cheerful givers do not count the cost of what they give. Their hearts are set on pleasing and cheering the person to whom the gift is given. Sounds like love. When we're motivated to give back to God, we do it cheerfully. And this idea that motivation is the key to generosity, it got us thinking as a teaching team. See, we're all wired for generosity, but perhaps we're motivated in different ways. What might motivate me to give generously may be different than what motivates you. And so we began to ask, could understanding our motivation help us grow in this important area of our spiritual journey so that we could become givers who sow generously? And that's where these generosity profiles that we developed with the help of a church in Chicago come into play that we introduced last week. Now, if you still need to take the test, you can text PROFILE to 816-608-4767, and that will send you a link to take the generosity profile test. It's super easy, eight questions total. You can do it really quick right now. And after answering those questions, you'll get results where you'll be given a primary profile and a secondary profile that illuminates some of your motivation behind being generous. And now there's six distinct profiles in total. And last week, we covered the first three profiles, community growers, whose primary motivation is being a part of community. Next was budget keepers, whose primary motivation for giving is being wise. And third were faith stretchers, whose primary motivation is spiritual growth. They want to grow spiritually, and they believe giving is an integral part of that. And if you missed last week's message, if those are one of your primary or your secondary profiles and you didn't get to tune in for that, you can go to our YouTube page. You can check that out. But today we're going to keep going. And today we're going to cover those remaining three profiles. And inevitably, because we love learning about ourselves, odds are you're going to pay most attention to your primary and secondary profiles, which is great. But just as an encouragement, if the profile I'm talking about isn't yours, It's probably the profile of someone you know, someone you love, or or someone that you interact with, but that you don't really understand at all. And so our hope is that by learning of the different ways that each of us is wired to be generous, we can grow in appreciation of each other's gifts and wiring and better understand how we're all working together to build the church. So let's look at the final three profiles, starting with the disciplined doers. This is actually my primary profile. As disciplined doers, you want to do things right. And so you're motivated by joyful obedience. To you, the commands in Scripture about generosity are life-giving. And for you, they're quite clear. And that motivates you to be generous. You're like, the Bible tells me I need to be generous. God calls me to be generous, so I'm going to do it. It's right there. And so, the more, and for you, it's the more consistently you follow biblical principles, the more aligned you feel with God's ideals for your life. And as you're obedient, you feel like you experience the blessing of God's generosity on your life firsthand. You feel like, oh, I'm living how God has wired me to live, and that's giving me joy and and peace and gratitude. And it may surprise you, this may surprise you. But I think a great role model for for disciplined doers in scripture, and they're all over the place, but I think a, a great one would be the character named Zacchaeus. Now, the before-he-met-Jesus version of Zacchaeus, who was a hated tax collector, that Zacchaeus, he sowed sparingly, very sparingly, and stole from people. Uh, I'm talking, though, about the Zacchaeus who has this life-changing encounter with Jesus. Once Zacchaeus finds his way back to God, it unleashes his joyful obedience in him, as he gave back to everyone he ever wronged and stole from, and gives back to them far more than he ever took from them. Here's what we read about Zacchaeus after he encountered Jesus. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. That is a disciplined doer. I heard a story recently of another disciplined doer whose name was Albert Lexi. Albert was a shoe, shi- a shoe shiner for 30 years at the Pittsburgh Children's Hospital. And for a long time as he worked there, Albert charged the same rate for shoe shining, $5 to buff, shine the shoes, and over years, he found lots of customers, and, and he, he, or he created a, a huge swarm of customers around him. He had patients, he had families of patients, he had doctors and lawyers and hospital staff. He built a real large customer base. And because Albert was really friendly and he was really good at his job, he would often get a tip from these people. And when Albert decided to retire, he approached the hospital staff and told them that he had a donation he wanted to make to the Children's Hospital Free Care Fund, which helped patients that couldn't afford their medical costs. And the hospital asked him, okay, Albert, how much do you want to donate? And he told them, well, I've been saving up my tips over the years. In fact, every tip I've ever got, I've put it aside into an account, knowing that when I retired, I wanted to donate this fund. Any idea how much tip money Albert had saved at the end of 30 years? $200,000. Yeah. The hospital, like you probably, was blown away. They were like, what in the world? Are you sure you want to do this? And he's like, yes, I want to do this. I want to give generously. And I've been thinking about that number. And what's really crazy is that Albert never did anything, any, anything big. He didn't have this lucrative career. He was a shoe shiner. It's not the most lucrative career. I know about you, but when I walk by the shoeshiners in the airport, normally there's no one over there. <laughs> not this lucrative career. But Albert, what was surprising about him, what he was lucrative about was discipline. And he was disciplined in doing lots of small steps that could accumulate into something, give, uh, something, uh, something bigger. And that's what drives the disciplined doer. You know, it's even crazier. I actually was doing some math as I was preparing this teaching, and if you were to set aside 10% of your income for 30 years at an income of, let's just say, $60,000, any idea how much tithe you would give to the local church or how much tithe you would give to to some other organization over 30 years? $240,000. That's even more than what Albert gave to the hospital. In newspapers all across our country, write stories about that kind of generosity, that kind of sowing generously. And yet, what's crazy is it happens all the time in the church. In anonymous people who don't get any stories written about them, but who over the course of their lives give generously and disciplined, and dis- with a lot of discipline, setting aside 10% of their income month after month, month after month, with the same intentional steps. We set aside a small percentage of our income and we obediently give it back to God. And imagine the difference that kind of money could make over your lifetime for the kingdom of God. Imagine how many people who are living in poverty that the church comes alongside and loves and supports and and serves. Imagine how many people in those circumstances you you would impact in your lifetime and likely even beyond your lifetime. My wife, Sarah, and I have been giving at least 10% of our combined income to the church for as long as we've been married and while we've, and while we've, while we've never made a lot of money. And even uh, there was a circumstance in our life where we had been doing in a foster care type situation with a high schooler with no support from the state. And we still tithed 10% of our income in that, even when we were supporting a high schooler that we were not, not prepared to support. And I'm a pastor, right? And my wife is a social worker. Those are not the most financially lucrative careers out there. <laughs> but when we took a few minutes just to add it all up, we were blown away and filled with joy because of what we've been able to give over the years to our local church that we believe in. And it made us want to give even more. So that's the first profile, a disciplined doer. All right, let's look at their next profile, cause movers. Cause movers are motivated by making a difference. If this is you, you're drawn to specific causes in the here and now. You're often the first person to step up and be generous when you're presented with a tangible need. You're relational, you're responsive to requests for help from people that you know and trust. As cause movers, you like seeing how your giving makes an immediate and observable difference in the life of someone else. And you likely are concerned with the organizations you're giving to. You want to know, are you going to be responsible with the money I am investing? Are you going to use it for a worthy cause. When I think of cause movers in the Bible, I think of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is the man that God used in the Old Testament to rebuild Jerusalem after its destruction. But have you ever noticed how Nehemiah's story begins? Let me read it to you. Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. So in that verse, Nehemiah's brother had recently been on a trip to Jerusalem, and upon returning, Nehemiah starts asking him these questions about the condition of Jerusalem. And his brother then shares some bad news. Here it is. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. So the gates of the city have been broken, and the whole province is a mess, And Nehemiah is so troubled by this that he sits down and he weeps. And he begins to pray. And at the end of his prayer, we get this really important piece of information. I was a cupbearer to the king. So Nehemiah is moved to tears and to prayer. And then he remembers, oh, I was a cupbearer to the king. And then he springs into action. And what he does is he goes and he leverages his influence that he has with the king because he was his cupbearer. And the resources that the king has at his disposal, and he sets out to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem with the help of the king. And I love that picture of a cause mover. Cause movers, they need something that they can get behind, something that they can rebuild that's previously been destroyed, that they love and they care about. They're looking for some problem out in the world to tackle. And when they find it, they hold nothing back. They'll do anything and everything to address a cause until movement takes place. And I mean, just imagine what kind of things we could do as a church if we were able to activate all you cause movers like Nehemiah to lead us in generosity. Imagine the impact we could have. Imagine the problems we'd be able to solve. So that's our second one. Now here's our our last profile, number three, the legacy builder. If you're this profile, you're a visionary who looks beyond today to your dreams for the future. Leaving a legacy, that's what motivates you. You want your life to count for something both now and after you're gone. If you have children, it's maybe important to you to leave behind some inheritance for them. But when an organization or a cause becomes important to you, maybe you decide, actually, I'm going to make a significant investment both in the present and in the long-term planning because I want to leave a legacy through this organization I believe in or this church I believe in. For you, if you're a legacy builder, you just want to leave a mark on the world that's bigger than yourself. Maybe one of my favorite stories of a legacy builder in the Bible comes from the person of Ruth. Ruth has every reason to walk away from her mother-in-law, Naomi, when her husband unexpectedly dies. Yet Ruth somehow sees the need for a greater legacy. And instead of choosing to just take care of herself, she sees her mother-in-law's needs as a chance for her to invest her life generously in a way that would go well beyond the here and now of the present. And so Ruth commits herself to Naomi. Where you go, I will go. That's what she says to her. And she goes and she gets a job in a field. And then one day she approaches a wealthy man under the cover of night to see if he would commit to marry her. So she could generously care for her mother-in-law in need. What's so beautiful about this act is that I know many of you today have or might find yourself with a similar invitation to care for your parent when they are in need. And God blesses Ruth for this, not only by providing her a beautiful marriage to this man she approached, but also by providing an even greater legacy in her future, by being the great-great-grandma of David, who would become the king of Israel. When I think about legacy builders, I think about uh, my grandparents on my mom's side. They passed away about a decade ago. But one of the many legacy-building things they did was they set aside an inheritance for all of their children and grandchildren to have once their grandchildren reached the age of 25. And they had four children and like 20 plus grandkids. So this was no small feat to want to leave behind somewhat of a significant inheritance for them. And what's really crazy to me about thinking about my grandparents' legacy is my grandpa in particular, he came from a very, very, very impoverished family growing up. And what he decided to do as he began to create his own family with my grandma and have kids was that one of the legacies he wanted to leave behind was some level of generational wealth so that no one in his family, no one who would come after him, would have to start their adult life with nothing in the bank account like he did. And here's what's crazy. My grandpa did not go to college, and he did not have a lucrative career. He worked a nine-to-five job on the railroad basically his whole life, but he was motivated to leave a legacy. And so he would curb his desires and he would save way more than he spent. Save so much that when my mom talks about it, she's like, sometimes it was on the line of kind of crazy. (laughs) But he would save because he had this vision to leave something for his children and his grandchildren and eventually his grandchildren's children. And his generosity has inspired my wife and I to try our best to make plans to leave behind a blessing for our children and our grandchildren one day. And that's the kind of impact legacy builders can have. I would not, because of my wiring, likely think about that at this point in my life had it not been for my grandpa and the blessing that he left me and my brothers and his wider family. And his life can be an example that you do not have to be rich to do this. Matter of fact, you can be the furthest thing from rich. All you have to have is discipline and the motivation that you want to bless those who will come after you. You wanna set aside something for those that you might never even meet. My grandpa passed away a decade ago and my wife and I are pregnant right now with our first kid. My grandpa will never meet his great granddaughter, my daughter. And while that breaks my heart, I cannot wait till she is born and she grows up and I can share with her the stories about how she is being watched over and has security because of a gift that my grandpa, her great grandpa left behind for me and then for her. So those are the three final profiles. And I hope and pray you're encouraged to recognize the way that you are wired to reflect our generous God. Because here's the truth. Every single one of those profiles is good. None is better than another. And understanding how we're wired can help us leverage our motivation to grow into people who so generously, just like God does. To be someone who leverages your natural motivation to give generously rather than sparingly. Because when we choose to give cheerfully, we become conduits of the generosity of God in the world. We image God to those around us. This God who decided to make a difference in your life and in my life, who knew that apart from his love, we were dead. So being wise beyond all wisdom, God made a plan for spiritual growth that we might be alive. He gave the most generous gift imaginable, himself in the person of Jesus, who in joyful obedience went to the cross, sacrificing himself so that you and I could experience being a part of a community, the family of God, the kingdom of God that supersedes and transcends death itself. And through us, God is leaving a legacy in the world as we help more and more people find their way back to this generous God.